Greetings to you in the name of Jesus. My name is Pastor Brent Kuhlman, and we're going to continue our study of 1 Timothy in chapter 3. But before we do that, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Praise to you, O Christ. Alleluia. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, giver and perfecter of our faith, we thank and praise you for continuing among us the preaching of your gospel for our instruction and edification. Send your blessing upon the word which will be spoken to us, and by your Holy Spirit increase our saving knowledge of you, that day by day we may be strengthened in the divine truth and remain steadfast in your grace. Give us strength to fight the good fight, and finally by faith to overcome all the temptations of Satan, the flesh, and the world, so that we may finally receive the salvation of our souls. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Did you notice in the prayer, give us strength to fight the good fight, and by faith overcome all the temptations of Satan, flesh, and the world? Did you notice that? Fight the good fight. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do. Remember in his first letter, which we've covered many times. Now, 1 Timothy 3, uh, let's look at the qualifications for deacons. It's verses 8 through 16. You can read that on your own. Let's take a look again one more time at verse 9. The deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is where I left off last time, and I want to say a little bit more about this. Uh, good conscience and the mystery of the faith. All right, so I want to review uh, this talk where Paul says the mystery of the faith. Um, let me put it to you this way. The Christian life... And the life of the Christian is about taking part in a great mystery, uh, something that is hidden from our sight and hidden from all of our senses, something hidden and yet far more real uh, that one, that, than what seems real to us. And it has been revealed to us, especially in the divine service or when you go to church on Sundays. For example, Again, I'm talking about when Paul says that the deacons must hold the mystery of the faith. Okay, we're going to press this for all it's worth today. St. Paul preaches this mystery in his letter to the Colossians. And I think I covered with this with you last time, but it's worth reviewing. Colossians 1, verses 25 to 28. So if you've got your Bibles, go there. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 to 28. In fact, let's start at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now verse 26, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of the glory of this mystery. And what's the mystery? In verse 27, which is Christ. Usually the English, English translation is in you. 
that's not mistaken. However, it can be also translated among you. So back to verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And the mystery is what Paul says, which is Christ among or in you, the hope of glory. Now again, uh, the Christ in you is usually the English translation. It can also be translated among you. And the you there is not singular, but it's plural. All right. And so by Paul, by saying this, that the mystery is that Christ is among you, namely among us, it's plural you. The apostle here pictures the church as Christ's residence, the place where he makes his home. All right. Now, I want to also point out something. If you've never heard of this man's name, get to know him. And you can Google search him and you can read papers that he's presented. You can actually watch videos of him giving presentations. But he's a friend of mine. His name is Dr. John Kleinig, K-L-E-I-N-I-G. He's an Australian Lutheran. And he wrote a paper that I read a number of years ago. It's called Access to God's Grace. And you can just look that up on the internet. But I'm going to quote some of it here today. In particular, piggybacking on the language in 1 Timothy that the deacons are to hold the mystery of the the mystery of the faith. Well, Dr. Kleinig in this Dr. Kleinig in this paper entitled Access to God's Grace, he contends that St. Paul here is depicting himself as a mystagogue. I'm I'm piggybacking this with Colossians what I just read. That is um, St. Paul is a person that indi- initiates others into a a mystery. That's what he means by mystagogue. Somebody that initiates someone into a mystery. Now, Dr. Kleinig contends that the mystery is the physical presence of the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus with his people. He's among you, among us. The plural is you. Remember Colossians? In other words, um, the, what's disclosed, what is revealed is given to the saints, believers, those who are united with Jesus and so share in his holiness. And Dr. Kleining is saying here that Paul reveals the hidden presence and unseen activity of the Lord Jesus to the church by proclaiming the word of God to the church, especially the gospel that brings life and immortality to light for its hearers, 2 Timothy 1.10. So if, you, if you're picking up what uh, Dr. Kleining is throwing down here, Apart from the word of God, the church has no access to the risen and ascended Jesus. It is God's divine and most holy word that then initiates the believer in the mystery of Jesus, namely that he is among us, something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has ever conceived. The revelation then of Christ's hidden but yet real presence in the divine service through the word, gives the church a foretaste of heaven's glory, a dress rehearsal, if you will, of heaven already on earth. And that just, that brings to mind what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 22 to 24, where there are seven things that you've come to. And one is that you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, where there are millions and millions of angels gathered in joyful assembly. And that's where? In the divine service where the word of Christ is proclaimed. Point being, 
when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith, this mystery of the faith is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he has suffered, died, and risen, and that he is still with us. His ascension doesn't mean that he left, but rather, as Paul says in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians, he now fills all things for the sake of his church. And so Jesus, through his word, proclaimed, read, and taught, word, hooked with baptism, Matthew 28, okay, with water, word, hooked with bread and wine, Matthew 26 and its parallels, etc. Jesus is actually in the midst of his congregation, giving and dishing out the forgiveness of sins that he won for sinners on the cross. All right, so that, I wanted to review that with you. Uh, it's just, let me illustrate this another way, how this, this truth, this biblical truth is reflected when you come to church. So, for example, when the pastor announces the Holy Gospel, so for example, the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter, what does the congregation say or sing? Glory to you, O Lord. Now, who are you talking to when you say glory to you, O Lord? You're talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is he? Is he stuck up in heaven somewhere? No. He's actually in our midst through that word. That's why you say that. And then the pastor reads the words of Christ from Matthew's gospel, the 14th chapter. And when he says, this is the gospel of the Lord, what does the congregation singer say? Praise to you, O Christ, who just spoke to us through his word. Point again is Jesus is physically present. It's just we don't see him. But this is the mystery. He is, he is physically present with his church. His church is, as I, as I, as I like to say, you know, Kuhlman's always got these, uh, these words. The church is Christ's hangers-on. All right? They hang on to him. They're gathered around him, around his word, and his word attached to the water of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And this is the mystery of the faith. And the deacons must know this. And they must be able to serve knowing this. And pastors as well. I think, I think for a number of generations that, that got lost in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. I, I really do. I think that got lost. That's been revived over the last 40 years, at least, in the Missouri Senate, this biblical truth. All right, now back to 1 Timothy 3. Let's look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, again, I'm reading, I think... Is it the NIV? Let's see what I'm reading here. Or is it ESV? I forget what translation I'm using half the time. It's ESV, the English Standard Version. Their wives. Now, the question that some scholars ask is, are these the wives of the deacons or are these deaconesses? Women deacons, if you will, deaconesses. And the reason why some scholars say this is because in Romans 16.1, Paul calls Phoebe a servant, literally a diakonon, a deacon of the church at Kenkria. So there's this debate among scholars whether these are this, their wives is the wives of the deacons or whether it's deaconesses themselves. I'll leave that up to other people to decide. Verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is, in Christ Jesus. That language of, for those who serve well, gain a good standing for themselves. Literally, step. <laughs> step. This may mean that in faithfully doing works of mercy, that's what a deacon would do in the church, 
they would draw closer to God and continue to learn how to apply and speak the gospel so that their work flows from faith and is well-pleasing to the Lord. However, there are some scholars, I'm just telling you this so that you have this information, there are some scholars that believe that this step, those who serve well gain a good standing for themselves or a step for themselves, some scholars would contend that that means that they grow in stature uh, and, uh, how shall I say this, influence by the faithful exercise of their service and so as matured Christians serving in the church and uh, being bold, they then would then say, you know what, I, I don't want to be a deacon anymore. I want to serve as a pastor in the church. Okay, Could be, could be. Now, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, looks back to chapter 2, verse 1. Okay? Paul explains what he's elaborated on these practical aspects of the church order, even though he hopes to come to Ephesus soon. So he's written directives in the awareness that his hopes to visit Timothy personally may come to pass, or may not come to pass for that matter. Now, since Paul's situation is critical, and so is the congregation's, Paul can't postpone his instructions to some uncertain future. He might not be able to come. He hopes, but he might not be able to. And so Paul is saying, you know, I'm not going to leave the affairs of, of the church to be handled lightly. And so Christ, you know, whose praises, who, whose praises are sung in the last verse of this chapter, chapter 3, uh, who's the head of the church, his salvific merits will merit careful and conscientious, conscientious attention, I should say, not just a doctrine, but also practical things. As he says in verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Interesting, how to behave in the household of God, in the church. Interesting, very, very interesting. The uh, how one ought to behave would, would include not only Timothy, but also to teachers, to men and women, to deacons, deaconesses in their relationships with one another, and to the father of the house, of course, which would be God himself. You know, this language, too, of, of Paul speaking in verse 15 as the church being the pillar and the buttress of truth is really interesting to me, and I want to make just a comment about that as the time flies. You know, the, the, the proper, or how should I say it, the properly functioning church, <laughs> God-pleasing way, I mean, exhibits and supports what? The truth by which her members live and move and have their being. And I just want to say some more about this. The truth. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It's, it's, there's the definite article, the truth. Um, in other words, unlike today, in the times in which we live, where you have somebody says, I have my truth, you have yours. And your truth might contradict my truth, but we both speak the truth. <laughs> that's, that's not true, folks. <laughs> Pardon my language, but that, that can't be. Uh, the truth is exclusive. The, the truth excludes falsehood. So, for example, let, let, me, let me try and illustrate this to you, of what I'm trying to say. Um, so, the Lutheran Church faithfully confesses, according to our Lord's own words, that with the bread, he gives us his body. 
and with the wine he gives us his blood. And he gives a promise that this is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, uh, That's the biblical truth. Um, but over my lifetime, and even past my lifetime within the last uh, 75 years, um, the Lutheran Church in general, I'm speaking in general, they've decided, well, you know, that's part of the truth, but, you know, other Christians have another truth, which is, well, they're, they're, you don't get the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. All you get is bread. All you get is, is wine. And there's no forgiveness of sins bestowed. And, of course, that's the typical Calvinist, Zwinglian, uh, Reformed position on the Lord's Supper. Okay? But in my lifetime, and going back at least 75 years or further, Christians, whether it's Lutherans or Reformed Christians, have come to this conclusion that, well, we have our truth, you have yours, uh, and both have a piece of the truth. No, they're con- see, my point is they're contradictory positions. You can't say that it is the body and blood, and then say it's not the body and blood, and then say both are true. Watch out for that, how this works. It's, it's the devil at work, okay? Back to what Paul says. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And, of course, the truth, too, also includes who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, look, take your Bibles. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 along this line. And we'll look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, where Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The church then is the is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So the church then is to be the servant of the truth which is given to us in Scripture. And so by believing and by proclaiming and by defending the teachings of the Bible, even if that means that the church has to purge herself from error and repent of error, the church still is called the pillar and the bulwark or the buttress of the truth. So here's my main point from this text here. As the church proclaims the truth from the Bible, she is at the same time combating heresies that threaten the content of the Christian faith. Let me say one other point on this to, to clinch it. This Again, I'm, what I'm doing here is 1 Timothy 3, verse uh, 15, where the church is called the pillar and buttress of the truth. God is triune. That is to say, Three and one, or one and three. One God, three persons. The persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When one denies the Trinity, one is no longer a Christian. Right? So, when the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity, when Mormons deny the Trinity, uh, when Unitarians deny the Trinity, that's not the biblical truth. Now, we want to teach them who the one true God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, did to save us, from sin, death, and hell. So, at the same time, when the church confesses the truth, it at the same time combats error. That's just the way it is. The truth does that. Okay. Now, verse 16, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, Paul says, we confess, is the mystery, there's that word again, mystery of godliness. And what is it? He, namely Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Ah, This is just delicious. I mean, great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. Remember, in Bible classes before, I've spoken a lot about that word or term godliness. And you can look that stuff up in previous either broadcasts or other Bible studies on 1 Timothy that I've given you. Remember the Greek word for godliness? Eusabia. That means godliness, piety, religion. And what's the piety? It's the piety of being given to, passively given to by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, in other words, just check it out. Anytime you have this term, uh, godliness, piety in the English it's usually the Greek, eusebia, and Paul's point is that it's, it's passivity, that the Lord is first and foremost, the divine giver of gifts to you and for you. And how does it, how, how are you a pious Christian? It's not first by doing, but rather by receiving, receiving Christ's forgiveness in his word and sacrament, hearing his word. Okay. So, uh, I want to repeat this. When we I spoke earlier about God as being triune, let's let's learn the biblical matrix that God doesn't live for himself. God does not exist for himself. Instead, he lives and exists for the sake of you. And we see this especially in God giving himself, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh and giving himself into death on the cross for our salvation. And so the piety or the mystery of godliness is then being given to by the Lord, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, doing this stuff for you, suffering, dying, and rising. Okay. So in other words, the piety, the godliness, is the piety, the godliness of being given to by the Lord Jesus Christ, being always on the receiving end of what the Lord Jesus gives. And as I'm going to say it again, because it bears repeating, in particular, his divine service of hearing his word. Now, I want to clinch this by going to uh, Luke's gospel. You all know this by heart, but let's, let's look at it. Luke chapter 10, because we're going to read the words in particular. And everybody's saying, oh, I know where you're going, Coolman. Yeah, well, let's read it. Luke 10, starting at verse 38. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This great indeed, we confess, the mystery of godliness or piety or religion is exhibited here in who? Mary, who's doing nothing but sitting at the Lord's feet and being taught by him. You remember Martha was busy with the preparations for the meal, etc., and she got angry with, with Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And what the Lord say? He said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The good portion is what? She sits at the Lord's feet and she's given to. Great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness, that Jesus has come to serve us in his suffering, dying and rising, and in his giving us his word. And so we're, we're to be like Mary, sitting at his feet, listening to his word and being given his gifts. You remember John 5, verse 24? Let's just look that up real quick. Since we're in Luke, we're not that far away. So go to John chapter 5 and look at verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word. Your hearing is passive. Okay. 
you're being spoken to. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Yes, great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness, what Jesus has done for us. And this connects with what? Whoever hears my word and believes. Look at John chapter 8, since we're in John's gospel. Look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who'd believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free. Abide in my word, or remain in my word, which is the Mary position. Listen. Be given to. Um, Since you're in John 8, look at verse 47 for fun. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. There's this passivity, the, the mystery of godliness passivity of hearing the word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. Um, if, you, if you want, look at the first, uh, look at chapters, uh, well, first, I, I just simply Revelation 2 sometime. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Revelation 2, 11, Revelation 2, 17, Revelation 2, 29, uh, Revelation 3, verse 6, Revelation 3, 13, Revelation 3, 22. He who has ears, let him hear what the, I think the Spirit says, okay? And in connection with hearing God's word, well, that's the word of baptism, Matthew 28. The word of absolution, forgiveness, Matthew 16, 19, Matthew 18, 15 to 35. Mark eleven twenty five, Luke 6, 37. Luke eleven four, Luke 17, 3. John 20, verses 19 to 23. 2 Corinthians 2.7, 2 Corinthians 2.10, Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13. This mystery of godliness, receiving the word in bread and wine, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. And while you're at it, you can even look up Acts 2, verse 42, where they devoted themselves to the breaking of the, the bread. That's Luke's way of talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, all this, great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. Back to 1 Timothy. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, etc. It's a mystery because only God can reveal it and has, as we read in Colossians earlier, has in these last days. He has revealed it. And Jesus then is the mystery in person. Okay, we read in Colossians. In fact, since we were in Colossians 2, we really should have read Colossians 1. Um, let's, go, let's go there. Colossians 1. This is just excellent. Verses 24 to 27. Now, oh, pardon me. We looked at that earlier. Uh, what I want to do is Colossians 2. Pardon me. Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I just, I can't help myself. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And all I can think about is what? Uh, some of the Old Testament literature. Uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, okay? The wisdom literature. Uh, and Jesus then is the wisdom of God in the flesh. All right? That's a whole other Bible study. I don't want to get carried away here. But the content of the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, 
is unfolded or uh, revealed in those six lines, which I would contend is probably uh, an early Christian hymn because it's pithy it's, and it's pointed as a message that it's in, that's basically, run with my analogy here, uh, inscribed in stone, which is a remarkable contrast to the endless genealogies. Remember that 1 Timothy 1 verse 4 and vain discussion, uh, 1 Timothy 1 6 of the Gnostics. There are six verbs in verse 16. After great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. There are six verbs. They're all passive verbs, which means it's being done to us or uh, being given to us by the Lord himself. And these verbs, then they describe six mighty deeds or acts of God that sum up the gospel, which we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the book of Acts. So the Son of God was manifested in the flesh. That's the first passive verb there. Remember John 1.14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery of godliness is that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He is the servant of God. And in a human body, he lived God's will perfectly of atoning love for sinners. He is the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah. And he, as the suffering servant, uh, brought salvation for sinners by taking our sin in his body on the cross and getting condemned with it. And he vindicates himself by rising from the dead, not by getting off the cross and saving himself as he's tempted. So manifested in the flesh and then vindicated, vindicated by the Spirit. So Jesus cried out and died on the Good Friday cross and he left his vindication into his father's hands. And the father indeed did vindicate his son in the power of the invisible life of the Holy Spirit manifested at his conception. Remember, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18, Matthew 1.20, Luke 1.35. Uh, in his baptism, remember, the spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, Matthew 3.16. Uh, his temptation... Matthew 4, in his preaching, Luke 4, we should look that up. My point is, is that when, when Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, we confess the mystery of godliness, manifested in the flesh, but vindicated by the Spirit. I'm, what I'm doing here is showing you how important the Holy Spirit is in the life and the work of Jesus. So what did I mention? I mentioned what verse? Uh, Luke 4. Yeah, Luke 4. Check this out. This is the beginning of, of his ministry, and check it out. The verse that I think I want to read, let's find it here. Verses 14, and I think it's verse 18. Again, this is the beginning of our Lord's public ministry, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Look at verse 18. Jesus, of course, he unrolls the scroll, and then he reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Namely, it's the Spirit, vindicated by the Spirit, Jesus sent by the Spirit, conceived by the Spirit, 
He is the Savior of sinners. And in his triumph over Satan's powers, this is done in the Spirit. Uh, let's see, how could we show that? Uh, go to Matthew. Let's do that. Go to Matthew, I think it's chapter 12, to kind of show this. Um, look at verse 28, I think. That's where we want to go. Matthew 12, 28. Remember, Jesus <coughs> is accused of being uh, possessed by the devil, doing these things because uh, he's possessed by the devil. But just for the sake of time, Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus then rose from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit. Look at Romans. Romans chapter 1. I think that's the right, right chapter. When you do this stuff off the top of your head, you take a chance. Okay, It is. It's Romans 1. Look at verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at uh, 1 Peter. I think that's another passage that uh, speaks some similarly. Again, you know, you do this at the top of your head. Uh, 1 Peter, I think the chapter 1 is uh, 3. And as I look at the verses, yep, it's verse 18. 1 Peter 3, <coughs> verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, So when Paul says that he was vindicated by the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. Seen by angels, he says in 1 Timothy 3.16. You know, angels saw what no human eye could see. You know, the angels, they proclaimed Christ's birth, Luke 1. Uh, they set a table for him, if I can talk like that. They set a table for the Lord Jesus in the wilderness after his temptation, Matthew 4. The angels, they hovered over him in legions as he walked on the earth. Uh, for that, you can check out John 1, verse 51, or Matthew 26, 53. They proclaimed God's vindication of his son Jesus and suffering servant to the disciples and prepared them for their meeting with the risen Lord. Remember the resurrection? or pardon me, the empty tomb accounts, like Matthew 28, 5, and uh, Luke 24, uh, verses 4 through 7. Seen by angels, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. So Jesus, the vindicated Son of God in power, sent them out, namely his apostles, under his mandate, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to the, to the nations, Matthew 28, Luke 24. And there, in an alienated and hostile world, the crowning miracle took place. The nations who had been far off are brought near. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, they believed on the Christ and came into the household of God, the Gentiles, that is. So the, Jesus lives and he reigns. And when he was taken up from the earth, his ascension, uh, taken in glory, which is spoken of here in 1 Timothy 3, he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father in glory, taken up in glory. Okay. Again, all this stuff proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, all these, that's what I'm, I'm telling you here. So again, I want to reemphasize, 
uh, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Jesus, I'm going to repeat this, and then we're going to say goodbye. Jesus, the vindicated Son of God in power, sent his apostles out under his mandate, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent them to the nations, proclaimed among the nations. Okay? And there in the alienated and hostile world, believed on in the world, the crowning miracle takes place, namely that Gentiles are actually converted and they're brought into the church. Read Ephesians for that. So Jesus lives and he reigns, taken up in glory, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. That's his ascension. So he sits at the right hand of God in glory. This is the mystery of godliness. This is why there can and this is why there must be a household of God, a church of the living God on earth. And that's why we worship. Remember what's the highest worship? The highest worship is faith. And it's why Jesus continues to gather more and more people around himself in the divine service so that we and they will be served by him in his word and sacrament, given the forgiveness of sins that he won for us on the cross. And this is why Timothy and all of us who believe in the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus must and can wage the good warfare for the truth because salvation is at stake and the gospel is at stake. Now, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Bye-bye. We'll talk again.